Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us, that we might know you and might know the way of salvation. Would you use your word now Plant it deeply within our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I've often caught a lot of flack by people who were uh, particularly in the military, but particularly in the Navy, because when I was in, I was stationed in Hawaii. And people all would always say things like, oh, you know, tough duty station. And, it, you know, it, it was nice. It was nice. Uh, but... In addition to that, not only was I stationed in Hawaii, but I was stationed on an Air Force base. And for those who may not be familiar with the military in the U.S., uh, the Air Force just tends to take care of its people a little bit better than the other branches. And the way I would always describe this is when you would drive on the Hickam Air Force Base, it looks like a country club. It's, it's landscaped and flowers and the houses are well kept and it had the best, best PX and the best chow hall and I mean it was, it was where you wanted to be. When you went through the back gate into Pearl Harbor, it looked like a shipyard. You know, everything's haze gray and peeling and, and it just was less desirable. Well, as grateful as I was to be there and to have that experience, and I was truly grateful to be on shore duty, especially as I began 
uh, I was only in for, for one term. I heard, heard stories of what it was like to be at sea. But I was curious, and so just before I got out, I had the opportunity to volunteer to, to go on board a ship and do some training. And so uh, the USS Boxer pulled, pulled into to Pearl Harbor, and I went on board, and um, I, I will go ahead and admit that I slept most of the time because I took so much Dramamine because I'm so susceptible to motion sickness, and I love seeing Robert Speed kind of nod uh, as, a, as a former sailor. Um, but while I was awake, I did get to see some neat things about the ship. You know, there was, it, it was a fascinating uh, a ship. It was the size of a World War II class aircraft carrier, big ship, uh, flat top, helicopters on top, had a big live well in the back that housed up to three hovercraft and got to watch the, the Marines do their landing exercises on the coast of Kauai. Uh, out the back, you know, zooming in and out. And, and one of my favorite things was standing up on the, the, the tower when the helicopters took off, and they're literally, you know, not even that wall's distance. And when they would turn and bank to go away, it'd, you know, blow you. It was a lot of fun. But can you imagine where the one place that I and everyone else wants to go on a ship? What is the one thing that everybody wants to see when they go on a ship? Not just a Navy ship, but when you go on a cruise ship, where does, where does every tour want to, want to end up at some point? The bridge. Well, the chow hall. Jess, we know what Jess is thinking about. Jess, it's only 11 o'clock. We've got a few more minutes. Besides the chow hall, it's the bridge. I heard somebody say it. A few people say it. Everybody wants to see the bridge. Now, you might imagine the big steering wheel. That's not the case in most modern ships. It's actually little devices or little wheels. But uh, it's the bridge. It's what everybody wants to see. It's where the ship is steered. It's where the control happens. It's where you look out and see what's coming. And if you're there on the bridge, you know what happens when the captain comes. The captain doesn't stay on the bridge. He has other duties that take him around the ship. But when he comes onto the bridge, there's a command that's given, captain on the bridge, and everybody pops to attention. Well, when you're in a time of crisis or in wartime, and the captain's not on the bridge, there's a sense of frantic and, and you're dealing with whatever you're facing, whether it's some, some kind of threat or if it's a storm. But when the captain comes on the bridge and that's announced, there is a sense of comfort and calm that comes from that. And that is, it comes from the fact that the captain is the one who takes responsibility. He resumes authority. He oversees the decisions And of all the people on the ship, at least you hope this is true, of all the people on the ship, the captain is the most equipped to do so. And so I, again, see my Navy friends smiling because we all know exceptions to that rule. But ideally, and this is where the illustration certainly breaks down, that's what you would hope. Well, part of the reason, I think, for John's writing of of including this, this description in chapter 4. And I say John as the author. Obviously, uh, this is the Word of God, and, and he's superintended by that. God's intent in giving us this picture in heaven is to give us this assurance that the captain is on the bridge. That is what this picture of the throne room does. It is a vision to give courage and comfort, not just to the seven churches in Asia, whom it was written to, but to us, to every believer since then, 
to come and see and get a glimpse of the very throne room of God, to see God ruling and reigning. No matter what threats are on the horizon, no matter how large the waves grow, no matter how great the storm rages around us, that we have one who is ruling over all, who knows all, and will bring us safely home. The picture of the throne room is the assurance of God's sovereign rule in the face of suffering and hardship. We know that the churches in Asia were either facing persecution or were going to face persecution. We know that historically. And a lot of times we think in our own setting how that one day we might face persecution. But let's be very honest with ourselves about this. If we're not able to trust God in the hardships that we face right now, then we're not going to suddenly start trusting Him when greater persecution comes. So this message is not just to us if we face persecution. This message is to us, every one of us, right here, right now, for whatever is on our plate. Learning to see God for who He is and learning to trust Him in the hardships that we face. Now the picture that we have, and I say picture, it's an image... It isn't a photograph. We all, if we're honest, wish it was a photograph. We wish that there was this really clear image of what everything looked like. We would love to know what God looks like. And yet, what we have here is more like impressionist art. It's looking through a veil, seeing through a glass dimly. This is true of most apocalyptic literature and most of the prophetic visions that involve the heavenly realm. We get glimpses. We get peaks behind the curtain. We get a description of a staircase to heaven in Jacob's dream with angels ascending and descending. We get uh, some kind of wheel in Ezekiel's vision. We get the the picture that Daniel sees in his and Isaiah sees in his. And all of these things do reveal to us truths about heaven and truths about God, but not with the detail that I think we wish for. In this text, for example, notice that God is referred to as he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. That's all we get. And you say, what is jasper and carnelian? Uh, We'll talk more about it. But don't we all want more? Come on, tell us a little bit more. God's intent is simply to give us this. That we might, this might lead us to worship. If you notice as we read through the text that this is where the movement of the text is taking us. It is to worship. It is to, to grow in, 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 in our trust, in our adoration, in our giving of glory to the one who made us. That's what this text does for us today. So beginning in verse 1, look with me if you will. It says, after this I looked and behold. This is a phrase that we're going to see after this. It comes in various forms, but we're going to see this again and again throughout the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a signal. And we're familiar with this, those who've been with us through our study, for example, in the book of uh, Genesis. We had, and these are the generations of, do you remember that? How that was a signal that this was the next section? And so we had that throughout the book. We're going to see the same pattern. It's common in Hebrew literature. It's it's similar to the book of of Daniel as well. This is the order of the visions as John received them. So he's describing to us 
in the order that he received them. But we have to be careful that we don't take our Western mindset then and come at these as if this is the way everything's going to happen. He's not giving us a linear history. In fact, we're going to see as we get further into the book that they're actually parallel perspectives, some of the same events. And so keep that in mind as we move forward. The first thing John sees in his vision is a door to heaven. Just in case you wonder, Indiana Jones fans, this does not mean that if you go to the island of Patmos today, that if you search long and hard enough, that you will find a door to heaven. This is a vision that John is having, and this symbol within the vision, he really did see a door, but it's, it's, it's doing something for him. It's showing him where he's going, what he's about to see, and in turn for us. It's showing us where the location is. This isn't something just in John's mind, uh, but it's, it's, and it's not something on earth. He's taking us into the throne room in heaven. That's what he's telling us. He hears a voice he describes as like a trumpet. And it calls him to come and see what soon must take place or what must take place after this. Now, the phrase voice like a trumpet is one that we've seen before in the beginning of chapter 1. We see that this points to Jesus. So this is Jesus' voice here that is calling him. It is like a trumpet. And we need to remember this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how the book is introduced to us. So Jesus is, is calling John to come and to see the second vision now. Come and look, peek into heaven. And for any Jewish reader or any student of the Old Testament, they would recognize, or hopefully we would all recognize, that the sound of the trumpet is a signal to us that something important is coming. So pay attention. This is, this is, this is the news to John. Pay attention to what you're about to see. John describes himself as in the Spirit. This doesn't mean that he was simply having a spiritual experience or that he was in some kind of a spirit. I think most of your translations under the ESV uh, will capitalize the word spirit, and that's, I believe, correct, that this is, John is in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working and doing this work. In fact, we see that uh, the, the, the triune God in this vision, we'll see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in harmony to show these things to John and subsequently to us as his readers. John finds himself next looking at a throne with one seated on the throne. And this word throne is in this chapter 13 times. And as we've talked about when we've studied other passages of Scripture, when we see a word repeated like this, it is again an indicator to us this is a theme. I would say that the word throne is the theme of this passage, that this is what we're supposed to be paying attention to. Throne, 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 13 times in this passage. It draws our attention to God's sovereign rule over all. That's the message of the throne. That's what the throne represents. William Hendrickson writes, He governs everything so that nothing happens without his will, whether good or evil. He assures them that that he and not Satan is on the throne. Let me pause in in quoting Hendrickson and say this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Because when we look around, it can be very easy to become convinced that this world is spinning out of control and that Satan is somehow in control. It can become very easy to believe that even if we would never say those words. And so this picture of the throne room is a reminder that Satan is not in control. No matter what we see, peek into the heavenlies and see the one seated on the throne so that you know he is the one who is in control. 
Let me continue what Hendrickson writes. That is why, he says, this vision of the universe governed by the throne precedes the symbolic description of trials through which the church must pass, beginning in chapter 6. In other words, this lays this foundation for us and for the seven churches in particular that before they enter into this increased season of persecution, that they might know the one who rules. That God is our only comfort in life and death because he rules over all and no obstacle can stand in his way. The one on the throne is, of course, God the Father. And he is described only as having the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. I've said this before, you know I'm going to say it again. There are some things we can be emphatic on in the book of Revelation and some things that we can't be emphatic on. And some of the symbols we can't be emphatic on. Lots of good people who love Jesus and love his word come down on differing ideas on little things about the symbols. But typically, there is much agreement on what the symbols represent or what they point to. And so even when we come to something like this, was Jasper then the same Jasper that, that is understood now, even though most of us, if, or I should say most of us, I just say me, I don't know what Jasper is. You know, I know what sapphires are, and, and I know what emeralds are, uh, diamonds, but Jasper, I'm not sure. Uh, Carnelian, I certainly don't remember ever hearing that. You know, what is that? And so there's some disagreement on what those stones are. But the point is, is that, We as humans are not able to see God. Scripture tells us that. And that even if we could, even if we could see God and live, we couldn't come back and adequately describe him to anyone else. We don't have the capacity. I would argue we don't have the capacity not only to see him because we're sinful, but we don't have the capacity to perceive him. That would be inadequate. And then our words would be inadequate. And so there's a sense that there's protection in this. I mean, we get descriptions in Scripture like Psalm 104 that says, You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Or we think of 1 Timothy 6.16, that God dwells in unapproachable light who no one has ever seen or can see. And so what's described here then with these stones is this reflecting. It's, it's light. There's John seeing light. He's seen light probably in different colors. Uh, he's probably seen um, light bouncing around. He the best way he can describe it is to to describe it like stones, like precious stones. These are symbolic. This is a symbolic description of what John is the experience that he's having. Now, we want more detail. We we do. We you know, just a little bit more. Tell us a little bit more. But rather, this is here to protect us because our imaginations are finite. And our tendency would be to do what if we did see more or know more? What, what, what would we as humans do with the information? We'd, we'd set up idols, wouldn't we? If not physically, we would do it in our hearts. And so the protection that we see in Exodus that says don't do it, don't create uh, idols that you, that, that you think are in the likeness of God or something, that you would an object of which you would uh, uh, put your mind's attention to and your heart's affection, that would become idolatrous then if we did see this. Well, in addition to these stones, there's this emerald-toned rainbow. Um, We understand what the rainbow represents, God's covenant faithfulness. God gave no other rainbow to, to remind him of God's covenant faithfulness. 
why it's green here. Uh, there are differing opinions. Was it a semicircle rainbow, what we typically think, or was it an entire circle that went around the throne? It seems to describe an entire circle, but again, differing opinions here. But what we can be sure of is this. Paul Gardner writes, Here in picture form is a warning not to interpret the disasters which will be talked about in the next part of the visions as if God had forgotten his promises to Noah. Don't forget the rainbow. Here in heaven is a snapshot of the rainbow. Don't forget, in a sense, God is surrounded. If we take the rainbow to to be a, a perfect circle, either way, even if it's just over him, the picture that John sees is God surrounded by his covenant faithfulness. He's not going to forget. So even though, um, Gardner goes on, even while God sits on the judgment throne, he is surrounded by his own covenant promises. What a comfort this is to his children to know that even as we face persecution, the one who has said, I will never change, the one who has made promises to us, those changes will, or those promises will never be changed or broken or altered in any way. And this reminder, this image of the rainbow serves to us as a reminder as we see it. In verses 5 and 6, the description of flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The lightning and the thunder imagery, where does that take us in our memories? Back to Mount Sinai, when God gave the law to Moses. When he showed the people looked up on the mountain, they saw the lightning, they, th- they heard the thunder. I would argue that what John saw in heaven wasn't simply lightning. What he heard wasn't simply thunder, but whatever he saw and heard, the best description that he can give to us that we can understand is lightning and thunder. In other words, I'm saying whatever he saw, it was bigger and better and greater and, and, and more awesome than anything we've ever seen. And these are, again, these, he's using earthly language to help us understand what he saw in the heavenly realm. This is what comes closest. If you can imagine having heard about the Grand Canyon and then having the opportunity to stand on the rim for the first time and look into it. For those of you who have seen the Grand Canyon, you know it's just this, I mean, unbelievers stand on the Grand Canyon and say, what? Wow, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just one of those things. Imagine someone trying to describe to you the aurora borealis and then seeing it for the first time, right? You, you, you know, we, we would lack the word. It's green, it's, they move, and, you know, but when you see it, it's amazing. This is what John is doing for us. He's giving us the best description that human words can give to us, but they still pale in comparison of whatever heaven is like. I will say this, whatever descriptions of heaven we have, it is better. Whatever descriptions of God we have, he is better. Now, in front of the throne were these torches. These are symbolic representations of the Holy Spirit. We've seen this already in the passage in chapter 1. Seven torches, or the seven spirits of God represent the Holy Spirit, speaking of the completeness here. A number of correlations that we could make between torches or fire and the work of the Holy Spirit. You might think of the Holy Spirit's visit at Pentecost and the tongues of fire that appeared. Or you might think of the Holy Spirit's illuminating work like a a torch on a path when he opens up his word to us. 
You might even think of what we talked about with the church at Laodicea, that the Holy Spirit is the, is the source of power for zeal, that we might be hot and not lukewarm. There are a number of ways that we could see the Spirit's work as, uh, as uh, uh, captured in that image of the seven torches. Now, in front of the throne is the Sea of Crystal, and this is likely water, but it's not called water. It may not have been. It may have just been something that looked that. It was crystal clear, perfectly still, and... This is, again, another symbol on which there are many varying opinions of what this is. But I want to remind us to look at the text there and and see what it says. It says, there was, as it were, a sea of glass. Again, John is reminding us that these are symbolic descriptions of what we are to see. And I, I want to pause here and just say that for young people, when you hear stuff like this, if you were anything like I was when I was a teenager, this sounds really boring. I, I this this made heaven sound boring to me. A sea of crystal glass. You know, I wanted to have fun. So understand these are symbolic descriptions. And the best thing that I can say to you is what someone told me when I was a teenager. Whatever you can imagine, it's gonna be better. It's just gonna be better. And it, we will be perfectly satisfied and perfectly happy. So these are symbolic pictures to help us understand who God is and what he is like, not to give us a picture or a photograph of what heaven is going to be like as if we're just going to sit statically in heaven or see by a a, a crystal sea. Now, back to to what we're looking at here. The two things that this uh, there's most agreement in what this points to, the crystal pointing to the character of God and his holiness in his infinite wisdom, that he sees all. Uh, some even describe this as the, the crystal being the, the firmament from what separates the, our sky from heaven. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily see that. Uh, others point this to being uh, describing the peace of God, that uh, if you look through the rest of Revelation, and for anyone who's read the book of Revelation, we know what's coming. There are some great evils that are going to emerge against God and his people. And where do a number of those creatures emerge from? From the sea. And how is the sea pictured? It's described as a raging sea or the abyss, right? And so here is the opposite of that. This is a perfectly calm picture of water, that what God brings is peace, where what evil brings is torment. Well, whatever this represents, um, and, and again, we can't be emphatic about these symbols, what I want us to see is it points us to the fact that God is not only ruling, but his ruling has an effect in our lives. It's not just that we're looking to this far-off hope. His ruling matters to us here and now. His ruling and reigning over all things brings us peace and calm in times of trouble, in times of tumult, right now, right here in this life. Well, having looked at the main character of the passage, I want us to look briefly now at the other characters that we see here, the elders and the living creatures. Now, verse 4 tells us there are 24 thrones with 24 elders seated on them surrounding the throne, clothed in white with gold crowns on their heads. Now, there are a number of explanations here, again, of what these 24 elders are and or represent. Some say that they are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, making up the number of 24. Some suggest that this is some kind of... uh, an angel, maybe a class of angel that hasn't been described in Scripture. This is a heavenly council uh, that God has. Others point to First uh, Chronicles. We see 24 orders of priests 
Uh, in chapter 24, we see 24 Levitical gatekeepers. In chapter 26, we see 24 Levitical worship leaders. In chapter 25, when you put all that together, you get an image of the people of God coming before him uh, in worship. Whatever John is seeing, the particulars of what he sees, I won't be emphatic about. What they represent, though, I think is clear, that this is demonstrating, this is a representation of the people of God. Uh, this is, um, uh, there's, there's, there's a representative role that they serve, not just in their being there, sitting clothed in white with crowns on their heads on thrones, but even what we see later in the chapter, there's some kind of representative role. Again, is this literally happening? Is this symbolic? We're unsure of, but there the, the, the elders uh, hold the bowls that have within them what it says that are the prayers of the saints. So, you know, in, in terms of what the particulars are, uh, there's still a lot of mystery around this, but what they represent, I think, is clear because if we go back to the seven churches of Asia, we see in this, in this description things that were promised to the overcomer, to the one who would conquer, to the one, and we know what the overcomer is, right? The one whose faith is in Christ. So to the one whose faith is in Christ was promised to be given white, pure robes. The one who overcomes is promised a crown. The one who overcomes is promised to rule with Christ. And here we see all three of those things described. In the same way that these descriptions of the 24 elders uh, represent the redeemed, the people of God, throughout the ages, the four living creatures that we see represent all of creation. So the creatures themselves are likely angels, similar to what we see in Ezekiel's vision, uh, but they are covered here. The description is that they're covered completely in eyes. And that, to me, sounds like something more you would see in a horror movie. It's, it's not something that you would want to come up against. But the, the, the all-seeing aspect of the, these angels is not to point their, to their all-seeing, but rather these are the servants of the one who sees all. And they, you know, they have the six wings. Uh, they're, they're servants. They're able to be sent by the one who is all-powerful. That's the image that is being conveyed here. And each of the, the, the creatures is, a, in a sense, a representative of a section of creation. The lion, he's the king of the jungle, right? He's the chief of the wild beasts. The ox is the chief of the domesticated beasts. The eagle is the chief of the birds, and man is the chief of mankind. They symbolically are pointing to the created order that is communicating something to us. And there's a clear emphasis on creation in chapter 4. When we get to chapter 5, which is the same vision, uh, we're going to see the emphasis zero in more on redemption. But here the emphasis is on creation. And what is being communicated is God has created in order that we might worship. That's what we were made for. We see the elders fall down, cast their crowns before the throne. They sing out, holy, 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 and worthy are you, our Lord and our God. This picture of worship in heaven is clearly an emphasis here that we're to see that flows from the theme that we've already established, that is the throne pointing to the sovereignty of God. Because He is sovereign, we worship Him. Because of who He is, the omnipotent Creator who made all, the all-wise ruler of heaven and earth, He is worthy of all glory and honor and power. The emphasis in chapter 4, again, His creation. We're going to see it moves to redemption in chapter 5. Here's what we are to see from these two songs. Look at the first one. First, God is holy, 
all-powerful and eternal. This is verse 8. That is, He is above all in worth. There is no one more worthy than Him. He is all-powerful. Nothing can control or subdue Him. Nothing can happen outside of His will. And He is eternal. He's outside of space and time. He is in no way limited by them, nor will He ever change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as we come back and look at Scripture again and again, as we see the covenant promises of God, as we see His mighty acts as recorded in Scripture, we are to be reminded that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so that whatever we're facing, whatever we're up against, it is the same God who is on our side. He is eternal. He is unchanging. In the second song, verse 11, we see that His worth is especially noted in the act of creation. We all, each and every one of us, exist only because He created us. None of us are self-existent. None of us determined our own existence. None of us willed ourselves into existence. We exist only because He created us. And not only all people, but the entire realm of creation is portrayed here. We all exist by His will. We're not our own but we owe our very lives to the one who made us. And so our reaction then to this and the description that's being uh, portrayed here is that we will either react in rebellion or in worship. Our reaction to the one who created us and who rules over all will lead us to either fold our arms like a two-year-old and say, you're not the boss of me, (laughs) or fall down like the elders and worship and say, worthy are you. This is, don't, don't see this just as a one-time response. You know, I trusted Christ and you know, I confessed his worth and my, my faith in him and so forth. This is a daily experience for us in our decisions that we make, in the choices that are before us, that we respond with folded arms saying to God, you don't own me because I want this, or I want to do this, or I want to possess this. Or we respond, worthy are you. In every temptation that we we face, in our relationships and how we respond to our spouses, to our children, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our coworkers, in our work, in our hobbies, in everything, this is what is before us. When we say all of life is worship, all of life is a choice, and all of our decisions we're faced with to either fold our arms and say, you're not the boss of me, or fall on our faces and saying, worthy are you, this is what we're describing. If you don't believe in God, if you have not put your trust in Him, hear His voice to you today who says, I made you. You did not make yourself. You didn't just pop into existence. By my will, you exist. Receive my mercy today by resting in the finished work of Jesus who died that you might live. And for you who are believers, hear His voice to you today. I made you. I made you for my glory. If you refuse to live in worship, the very rocks around you will cry out. See me for who I am and respond with your very life in praise. This picture of heaven that is given to us in chapter 4 is designed to strengthen our hope. It's not a blueprint of heaven. It is not a photograph of heaven. But it is to give us a clear understanding the one who sits on the throne and his sovereign reign over all, that we might know, that we might have hope, that we might respond in worship, and that our worship is modeled then after this heavenly image, that we are to honor God for who he is 
instead of limiting him by our own preferences or trying to make him in our own image. That we are to submit our lives to him in gratefulness instead of responding, you're not the boss of me. We are to give of ourselves unto him instead of clinging to what we possess as our own, thinking that somehow it will make us happy or fulfilled. Each of these things, honor, submission, giving, are all pictured here in Revelation 4. And they portray how our lives are to be lived before the one who made us. I spoke earlier of the comfort that it can be for sailors when the captain comes to the bridge. I know that illustration breaks down for us, and I hope you see that it breaks down because we have a captain who is on the bridge. He never sleeps or slumbers. He never leaves. He rules over all. He knows all. And he has promised to bring us safely home. He is the self-existent one. He is the one who sits enthroned in the heavens, who sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Let's pray. Lord, comfort our hearts with the hope and the truth that you reign. That even though as we walk out these doors in a few minutes, we're going to be instantly bombarded with a reality that seems like This world is out of control. We are going to be confronted with what seems like a frustrating life of difficulty and hardship. Would you bring our minds and our hearts back to this image, the very throne room of heaven, that you sit in in an unapproachable light and you rule and reign over all matters. Would you encourage us with this today that no matter what we face, We have one who is completely trustworthy, who is faithful, who never changes, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. May our lives be a fragrant aroma in our response to you. May we not fold our arms and stomp our feet when we don't get what we want, but may we fall before you and say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.